Hi, welcome to Sonnet Radio. This week we're doing another useful stick. I'm trying something new for the intro music, so let me know what you think. If you would like to suggest some topics for useless stick going forward, head on over to patreon.com forward slash radio and sign up for just a dollar a month. You get access to the super secret Patreon feed where you got this episode weeks ago, as well as the opportunity to tell us what we should be doing. As you'll hear in this episode, we had a lot of fun looking at Artisan's tools, and we're thinking of making it a theme for when we do useful sticks in the future. We'll go through all the Artisan's tools. If you like that, if you don't, get on Patreon. Tell us whether we should be doing that or not. Anyway, on with the show. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to Sawnet Radio. We're doing a useful stick today where we take one item or set of items that you might find in your standard adventurous kit, think nothing of, and forget. And get really upset when it still counts towards your encumbrance. And we see how we can use them to expand your role-playing experience, to inform character, and to do cool things in games. And with me is Jay Draper. Hello! Who the fuck are you? Uh, right, I'm Jay Draper. I write on the GM's toolkit. Uh, back me on Patreon, please, 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 please. Um... I also doing a uh, number of different sort of products coming out on DMs Guild. I've got the Ironclad Artificer up there. I'm going to be coming up with a um, Untamed Hill Country very very soon. So keep an eye out for that one. Oh, Untamed Hill Country! What the hell's that? Untamed Hill Country is going to be a pseudo setting that you can lay over an existing setting or use to create your own mini setting. Um, hill Country in particular is going to be hill regions, uh, monster specific hill regions, things to do in hill regions. Ah, so if you find yourself doing some boring overland travel, traveling half the world, you get to give some flavor on top of that? Or is it something that here is a load of plot hooks that you can have some adventures in? Hey, it's a bit of both. It's the idea is to the boring overland travel and make it interesting, make it a part of your game rather than just something between adventures. Nice one. Because what we like in RPGs is to take simple activities and turn them into huge, epic, sprawling adventures. <laughs> You're going to the shops, are you? Well... <laughs> Oh, the uh, the two hour session I had where my party ended up almost dying by six inches of water. Nice, good times. <laughs> Was it all their fault? All their fault, yeah. Just a, a, system, a series of incredibly bad rolls um, and just me unable to contain my laughter, pointing at them. <laughs> that 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 is probably the top of my list of mundane ways to die. I like that. <laughs> We have had a chat about various things. Uh, we put a Twitter poll up uh, with some of our favourite options on there, and Twitter, in its infinite wisdom, chose artisans' tools for us to look at. That gives us a broad range. So I thought Very we'd narrow it range. down, see what we like, and then go with these. Um, and we'll not be limited by this stuff. We'll we'll use this as our starting point. So, as per the player's handbook. Or from Dungeons and Dragons 5e, and please also don't be limited to fantasy settings and all that sort of stuff. And I'll I'll try and bring it through to other different sort of settings um, when I remember. Uh, but if you think of something that that works for you know a modern setting, such as Sheffield, the City of Steel, with a, a Dresden Files setting, uh, I don't know why that <laughs> came to me. I'm just off the top of my head. It was creative like that. So in this episode, we're going to be looking at the big tools, and we'll do another episode looking at the small tools. So uh, in the big tools, I think alchemist supplies, probably. Yeah. I think cartographers could be either or, big or little. It depends. Uh, if you're a proper cartographer and making maps, you'll have a 30-foot chain and a plane table. Uh, cook's utensils, reasonably large, perhaps. Oh, I would imagine so. Uh, just a fucking huge wooden spoon. Uh, Mason's tools <laughs> and smith's tools. If you've got an anvil, I suppose <laughs> that, that might be a bit overkill. <laughs> Weaver's tools. Those can be big and small. Oh, you just carrying around a fucking loom with you. Yeah. Brewer's supplies. I mean, do you bring your own barrel? <laughs> Carpenter's tools. Cobbler's tools. Glassblower's tools could be either. Leather worker's tools tend to be pretty small, mm. I reckon. Depends what you're doing, but they tend to be pretty small from, from experience. On glassblower's tools, how on, and how on earth could you take those around with you? Don't you generally need to have a... Yeah, a massive furnace. Yeah. Or is this, is this some secret art to glassblowing I don't know about, which doesn't require a massive furnace? Well, if you can produce magical fire. Oh. That, that might do it. So, oh. so uh, well, also, uh, as a history lesson, back in the day, um, itinerant craftsmen did go around a lot, um, and it was mostly potters would go around and they would, pr- they would make a kiln. They would make um, a... I think they'd go to somewhere where there's clay. They would make their kiln out of that clay and fire it, and then they would start making their stuff out of the local clay. 
and uh, it, it makes for some fantastic archaeological mm. dating and provenancing because you can tell exactly where things came from. And that is where most of the village greens in Britain came from. It's not that it was common grazing land necessarily. It was just common land that people could pitch up on. And if you're in mm. an area with clay and things like that, then chances are that was used by um, itinerant potters. And that's the, the reason mm. it was left open. Um, so they come along, make a load of pottery, and then sell it and bugger off. I suppose it's a similar sort of um, idea around charcoal camps and stuff like that, where they'd be essentially building massive uh, charcoal burning uh, mounds, and they have to build them from scratch and then move along when they uh, when they got to need new trees. Yeah, um, and you'd be hmm. there for weeks. Uh, I think someone cut down a tree next to the train station we use every day. Um, and they were there with a charcoal burning kiln for about six weeks. Six weeks? Yeah. Uh, so w- we've got, um, moving down the list, painter supplies. Man, they're, they're small. Uh, potter's tools. Hmm. Does that include the wheel? That's a big thing. Uh, to be honest, I like this idea. <laughs> what if you've got a fucking potter's wheel <laughs> or an anvil and you are carrying it around with you? That is a hell of a hook. It's <laughs> a hell of a character thing. I mean, if you make, if you think about it, in terms of artifices and wizards, they're going to be making a, a hell of a, a, you know, making a killing out of selling bags of holding to these itinerant <laughs> journeymen who are wanting to bring around a, a, a ready assembled forge and anvil. I like the idea of maybe you're a traditionalist as well and go, no, no, none of that funny business. And I will, <laughs> I will have a cart and I'll have an ox. <laughs> it, will, it will transport these tools. It's a throwaway line in your background when you're creating a character. <laughs> Uh, we then have Tinker's Tools, which has got to be small. I mean, they've got to be small hammers and little bits and pieces, uh, like metalworking, isn't it? Like, Yeah, I think tinkering's generally like copper mending, um, sort of minor repairs to pots and pans and stuff like that. Yeah, the From what I gather. Metals. Yeah. Hmm. Um, oh, Tinker, Tin, right, yeah. Tin, yeah, Tin. Um, ah. And cold working, essentially, I suppose. Uh, yeah. And then Woodcarver's Tools. Um, and again, uh, I think people would assume that they're small, but um, I've seen them big and I've seen them small. Um, Woodcarver's tools can include um, great big adzes and things like that to sort of scoop out. You know, what if you're carving an entire tree? <laughs> That's carving. <laughs> or just building a lathe. Yeah. yeah. So which of these uh, do we reckon are, are grabbing our fancy or do we want to just wax lyrical on a lot of these? I don't know. I think the uh, the Sheffield in me is sort of like drawn towards the Smith's tools, but then... Like I say, the uh, the mason's tools and doing a deep dive into Freemasonry, that's kind of got my attention. Well, should we do those then? Yeah, sounds cool to me. Cool. So then I can't just wax lyrical about carpentry all day. Oh, you can, if you, if you want to do carpentry, it's, it's no, your show. The, the it's literally your show. <laughs> Don't encourage me, Jay. <laughs> Let's go for mason's tools. Let's have cool. a look at this. So um, for those playing at home, we are using Grow Up and Game as a reference here, which has got this, this list of stuff out because it's not in the PHP. Xanathar's Guide to Everything then published um, various rules and things for crafting or whatever. But the lists of actual tools that are available are, are quite limited. Hmm. Let's have a look. Let's see what they say here. So the raw cost is 10 gold pieces. Can we just not? Oh, my God. Gold. Just gold <laughs> has no value whatsoever. None, none in fantasy settings. Oh, one gold piece. What's it made out of? Gold? <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, no, dear God, fucking no. I think I can count the number of actual gold pieces produced on this planet on the fingers of one hand. Because unless it's twenty-four karat gold, it's electrum. We call it white gold, and loads of people buy it. Like my wedding ring is not twenty-four karat gold. That's electrum, which is sort of cool. I like that. Yeah. So anyway, ten gold pieces. You could buy a farm. So drop it, ball. Drop it. <laughs> um, the ten gold well, it's an pieces. interesting point actually because the the um, the whole idea. I mean, I was looking to apprenticeships and stuff like that. Um, sort of medieval, um, essentially indentured servitude, and part of the justification for it was the cost of tools and training. Hmm. Now, if they, the cost of the tools is only ten gold pieces, and that's essentially it's called out a third of the value of the apprenticeship. I mean, essentially, you're selling your children off for 30 gold. Exactly, yeah. And also, one of the things that you would do, I know specifically in um, smithing, because uh, I've known a few people who have uh, gone through the master smithing route, obviously in the modern age, yeah. that one of the things that they produce as part of their, their journeyman qualifications is yeah. their own tools. So if you, So you'll start off with the absolute basics and you will produce the rest. Like, you will borrow someone's anvil. You will 
have a single hammer and some tongs and from it you will build i don't know your first uh chisel or whatever obviously in, in masonry that, that's gonna be slightly different but it's certainly in smithing um the, the first thing they do is make their own tools um and in carpentry as well uh the thing not the thing you'll make for your master work but for, certainly for your journeyman work will be your toolbox you'll make a, an incredibly ornate toolbox and carry it around with you um and i suppose a bit of background as uh, i grew up in germany oh they got the germany festivals and stuff like that don't they there Mm, yeah. Um, so so uh, in, in most of the world, the whole sort of journeyman master thing is a bit of an abstract. It's just a level of qualification based on experience and submitted work uh, and references. But in Germany, to become a, a master, you have to be a journeyman. And to be a journeyman, you have to go on a journey. <laughs> you have to go out and make your living out in the world with your skills. Uh, certainly in carpentry, um, th- there's this sort of quest for this uh, special black waistcoat. There's like the mark of the master <laughs> carpenter. And you see folks going around all of Europe, but mostly just in Germany where people understand where, what's going on, hmm. going from house to house, going from town to town, pitching up and just saying, there's a journeyman or two journeyman carpenters. Who's going to put us up? We will do work for you. And they have to pay their way, um, but they can only do it with their skills. And you can see them a mile off because they'll have these toolboxes and like a sleeping roll. And uh... and they've got the uniform as well, don't they? Yeah. Mm. So right there, if you have a set of artisans tools that you bloody earned and you decided you earned them, I reckon there's a good backstory right there. It's like you could walk into somewhere um, in, in, the, in your, your gaming world and go, I want to know someone from here. I want to have passed through here a few years ago doing my journeyman work, that sort of stuff. You don't need to have qualified as a master necessarily. You're a level one person but yeah you might have some history and that's a good way of having history and people don't necessarily think of that they think of what what is your hometown or uh if you're a bard yeah you'll have gone around a lot but if, if you've got an artisan's kit and, and you went through a process of qualification you probably did this so let's see the mason's tools raw cost 10 gold pieces raw weight eight pounds see a lot on the light side it does really doesn't it yeah, but I suppose there's only the one hammer in there, so we're not talking a full quarrier's kit. Yeah, I mean, you might have an eight-pound hammer, but like... Items. A trowel, mason's hammer, a blocking chisel, saw, a line level, and a brush. A brush. A brush? Oh, I, I can't... Oh, it's for brushing away the dust. Yeah. That seems a bit... Fair enough. Like Excessive. Uh, so a line and level, a saw, a chisel, a blocking chisel rather, uh, a mason's hammer and a trowel. So you've got the one chisel. I'd have thought you'd have a couple. You'd have you have like your uh, a medium one, a wide one, and then a point one. Yeah. So that would up the weight. Maybe this is maybe this is the idea is um, you know you are a level one neophyte. Maybe the, the idea is that you're um, you've been sent off with just the basic chisel and you've got to earn your next chisel i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've got to do some work for a, a blacksmith and, yeah. and get a couple more chisels uh, like build a forge uh, a trowel for example a trowel in masonry um i, I mean i'm assuming that the tr- this trowel is for um you know cement and mortar, mortar yeah uh, in which case they're, they're usually quite large and kind of elongated diamond shaped yeah I have such a one myself. It's slightly small, a <laughs> WHS drop forge four inch pointing trowel, which is a standard archaeology tool. Um, and so, so, but the a mason's trowel can be huge. I mean, it can be sort of eight to twelve inches long um, and about six inches wide. So, in and of itself, it can be a weapon. I mean, a hammer oh, can be oh, a weapon. Definitely. Chisel can be a weapon, but that trowel don't underestimate a trowel. <laughs> So you've usually got a fair decent edge in them as well, especially if they're kept in, in decent nick because of yeah, so they're going to be able to lay a fine line. That, yeah, because because yeah, you, you're sort of scraping things on, on mortar onto it and then slapping it around, yeah. but you're also producing a fine edge on that mortar and pointing. Yeah. Um, you need to get in the cracks and make sure there's a, a good straight edge on things, so you tend to sharpen it. Um, and the point itself, you can make it so it's nice and thin and pointy and stabby so you use a hand to hand or can you make it like a chisel point um, and that makes it really good for throwing not that I've ever sharpened a <laughs> trowel to a chisel point and throwing it things um, it's, it's like a, so I'll bite you a it's st- standard pastime on archaeological sites where nothing is happening you just sort of sit there and throwing your trowel at the spore leap 
So um, what would you use it for in archaeological terms, then, presumably for um, digging out sort of points out of hollows and things like that? It is your your main weapon of choice on site, is a trap. Mm. Uh, generally speaking, cleaning large areas you do with a hoe um, rather than sort of being on your knees and scraping back slowly. Yeah. But if you want to go and do the fine work and getting individual features and things like that, it's hit it with a mattock and then tidy it up with a trowel. Right. Um, <clears throat> archaeologist tool should be a part of this because, dear God, half of D&D classic is archaeology. Um, it is really 90s, lacking, 90s. actually. I can't, I can't believe it. there's not something similar in here. There should be like a historian's kit at the very least. Yeah, uh, action historian. Um, so oh, with a revolver and a bullet. A blocking chisel. Um, I assume that that is like a rough work chisel, like blocking something out. Um, seems to be the case. I think it would be the, uh, the, the, the sort of flat, low-lying one. Yeah, with which you can do a lot of work with it, an awful lot of work. And yeah, you can do like fine point stuff with the edges and the, the little side bits. A saw, um, if, if a saw can go through stone, fair enough. I, I would assume you'd need a lot of stuff um, for that. So it depends what you're cutting. Yeah. If you're cutting sandstone. Yes, sandstone and that. Um, I mean, the, I know they use, um, in modern day quarrying, they use diamond tip saws hmm. uh, to cut the blocks from their quarries. Yeah, I mean, they used to use saws that weren't necessarily diamond tip to cut through, and they would just go through them. They would just right. wear them down. But yeah, modern technology sort of went to cope with that. But there is an old technology, and I, and I do mean old, uh, like... Um, Jesus, when was the first one? I, I know Mesolithic in the UK, but that's an easy answer because everything's Mesolithic if it's early <laughs> in the UK. I think there's some Paleolithic. So we're talking uh, about 15,000 years ago um, right. when people made beads and and put those beads on strings to, for necklaces or whatnot and they had to make a hole in it. And, and the way you would make a hole, and you can do this actually, you can do this on a line as well. Um, and, you know, it's been proven to happen. Um, you can, so you get you get your piece of stone or, or you know, jewel, uh, you know, whatever precious metal, uh, not metal, sorry, it wouldn't have been, uh, whatever precious stuff, usually like um, a nice stone, nice really hard stone, volcanic perhaps. Um, bloodstone was particularly popular. And you get a stick and it's like you're making a fire, you know, like a fire drill. Oh, like a friction sort of. Yeah. Mm. So you get a soft stick. And you take the end off it, round off the end, and you stick that into some sand. You just ram some sand into the end of it. Okay. Um, and so you sort of you know work at it a little bit between your hands, rubbing it between your hands. And then when it stops working, you just get a bit more sand and dish, and then you know keep going. And you make mm-hmm. like a, a dish, and then you go in from the other side, and eventually you'll break through. And you keep working at it, and you use smaller and smaller things, and uh, eventually you can use something to like something hard to then break through, um, and you can produce really like smooth, nice holes in there. And um, until things were found that were unfinished, we had no idea how they did this, absolutely no idea, um, until we found a load of stuff that was in various states of completeness, um, and it sort of it became obvious. But that's something you can do if you have. Um, if you have a saw, and that saw um, on the edge doesn't have any actual teeth, it can have like a recess, and you put putty into it, or you put um, or you put wood into it, yeah. uh, and you can then do exactly the same thing. But you would like lay a land, uh, lay a line of sand, for example, and then you know move it back and forth. Right, can you use the friction of the sand against the stone to to cut it. Yeah, um, wow. and you go so far as maybe use the chisel to cut a channel, you know, in, for, to make a yeah. straight line, and then that, that contains the sand. So it doesn't keep brushing away because, as any worker of hard materials knows, it's making the first cut that's the hardest, uh, and, and getting it right without things skittering everywhere and screwing up. <laughs> I found that old wallpapering actually. <laughs> it wasn't even hard material. <laughs> uh, line and level. Um, so a line and level. Uh, so a level, I suppose, like a spirit level. Do you reckon? Yeah, something like that. I mean, the line suggests plumb line. So maybe, yeah. maybe a level would be something on that, like a, like a square or something like that. Or you get a chalk line. Yeah. So in yeah, like a, a piece of, um, what do you call it, um, string covered in chalk. Uh, and you would sort of string that sort of from one end to the other end of your piece and then you just like ping it, at, you know, get it right. tense. And then you would ping it and it would create a line of chalk and it would help you yeah. figure out where you're going. Um and a brush. I assume that's a normal brush, not a wire brush, I mean. Cool. Uh, crafting restrictions, it requires a workshop. I call shenanigans. 
workshops are good, but you can do stuff out in the fly, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, can create stone artwork such, such as statues. <laughs> oh, Xanathar. <laughs> you think in such small terms. Uh, structure building. One of the core toolkits used when creating structures. Fair enough. Okay. So that is what we've got. We've got stuff and things for working stone. And that is boring. Uh, it goes in your pack. People forget about it. And people can go, oh, I've got a hammer. I've got a chisel. I can do this and maybe use the line for string or something like that. And the hammer will, of course, the hammer will be used as a as a weapon. So the first thing that comes to mind, chisel, hammer, that's a piton. You've got an impro- improvised yeah. piton, I reckon. I can't fault your logic there, actually. Yeah. Um- <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the hammering in itself is, is too easy because, I mean, looking at Mason's hammers, they are essentially light hammers. So that's mm-hmm. what, 1D, 1d6 damage from the... Uh, was it 1d6 bludgeoning or 1d8 bludgeoning for light hammers? I say 1d6. Uh, 1d6. 1d6. Uh, like, um, from experience of war hammers and things, a Mason's hammer is much heavier. has a lot more mass in the, in the actual head uh, because you're wanting the, the head to do a lot of the work for yeah. you and relying on inertia, whereas a... Uh, a horseman's hammer, for example, you're relying on the actual speed that you're putting into things. And if you're using it on foot, you want it to be nice and nippy. Um, so you get a long handle on it, gives you a lot of reach, and you can use it with a lot of leverage. Um, and you're relying on it going very, very fast and hitting very precisely. But with a mason's hammer, it's a big old lump, and it's got a short grip on it. So, you know, like a, like a sort of Mjolnir type yeah. hammer. Um and that is it is badly balanced. So like, uh, you wouldn't have any sort of reach with it. You'd be looking at like it'd be the same as punching someone. Like the skill would be the same, almost the same as punching someone. It's interesting that they've chosen to go with a hammer rather than a mallet. I would have thought the mallet would have been the. You can have wooden mallets. You can, you know, they had uh, rubber, rubber. Um, so not industrialized, but they had they had rubber edged tools. I believe in, in some. Hmm. Medieval cultures. I suppose it it, it depends on, on what you're working. There's probably a mason out there just going, oh my God, you know. Yes. <laughs> Quite probably. Mm. But like, um, if there is stone and there is, usually you're out in the wilderness, you'll find outcropping. Unless you're in a, a particular landscape type, you know, let's say, for example, you're in hill country. There's going to be outcroppings. There's of going course. to be maybe glacial randoms as boulders. There's going to be field stone, which, you know, stuff brought up by the plough or brought up through worm action. Well, be buried through worm action, but you know, brought up through bioturbation. And there'll be outcrops. So if you've got a way of marking stone in that sort of environment, then you've got really good ways of leaving messages. You've got really good ways of hiding those messages as well, because who's going to look at every rock? So um, you can... Uh, sort of treat your environment, I suppose, to I don't know what what, what oh, sort almost of like scout sign, but like yeah, like, almost like scout sign, I suppose, in a way you could like leave um, sort of very short symbols or something like that on there, or, or even a detailed message, depending on who you want to. Yeah, just leave uh, an essay. Like, I'm just going to be here and I'll do the Flintstones <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, in, in terms of reading marks and stuff like that, you got that. I mean, crazy idea, but. Um, what about Wizard Mason, who uses, instead of Spellbook, carves his um, or, or their uh, spells on, onto rocks? Oh, for God, it to I like them. that. Like, it, like um, on the small scale, like, like pebbles or something? So yeah, like a so bag, like, bag of pebbles, and they're just yeah. really, really in detail on the, the back of this pebble. Or it's, just, it's like a single symbol that only they get. Yeah, I mean, that kind of thing. Like, you know, you can get a hell of a lot of detail onto, um, onto well-dressed stone. Mm. So I don't see why you couldn't, you know, have runic symbols on there to use them as a, as spell components or um, or as spells themselves, or spell scrolls. And your focus, yeah. Well, scroll. Oh God, yeah. Could you imagine that? I love that. Like like a damaging spell that is a fireball, but it's tied to this rock. So you activate it's it. And you've got to throw, throw the rock. rock. <laughs> you've got to position it. It's maybe it's like a timing mechanism. Like it's, it's you've now got a grenade. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to bring that into my home game now. I think I'm going to have to steal that one. <laughs> yeah, like you cast multiple spells onto a rock, like um, uh, like a scrying spell and fireball and something like that, and so it's just like pro- almost programmed to go off at a certain time with a, when a certain person enters a room. Um, that could be awesome. 
that's, uh, that's stone weapons in themselves. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, making stone weapons to improvise um, out in the field if you stone yeah, spears. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, let's say you know you need to fortify an area. I mean, it's one thing to break off sticks and sharpen them. It's another thing to have a sharp point on it that is going to last a bit longer. Is going to do a bit more damage and might break off in the target, like uh, microliths. Okay. Uh, microliths are just little bits of uh, flint or, or some other material that flakes off and produces sharp edges, like obsidian or something. Right. And you you get lots of them, and you kind of stick them to um, spears or you, like the, the side of a spear shaft. You might have one in the end, but you'll have loads down the side, or um, you know arrows and things like that. What's that um, the kind, of, the kind of Aztec weapon that was like that? Almost like a, a wooden enclosure for flint edges around. The, yeah, absolutely. It's a like half a, sword, a half bit, sword. Yeah, they sort of they sort of call it a sword or a club. It's more rightly a club, but um, yeah, when they, they'd embed um, shards of obsidian into the edge and um and it was like clamped on so it was just an interference fit as well so you could like remove them if they broke and then put another one in but yeah microlith is is tiny uh, so the, the the ones um on the the aztec versions are about three inches long two to three inches long um and they might be obsidian or they might be um almost like polished stone axe heads in their own mm. right and uh the, some of the idea is with the smaller ones that it'll go in nice and easy and then that, that the animal or the opponent or whatever, and these are generally hunting rather than they're not man killers, they're generally for hunting, is that the animal will um, try and get it out and it will, depending on how you build it, either shred them on the way out Ooh. or it will come or they'll come off of the arrow, leave your arrow nice and easy to find and like a good indicator of where the animal went and leave a gaping wound that's full of sharp bits of stone or you know volcanic glass uh, and it'll oh because it's brittle isn't it so it, it would you could necessarily might break off in the wound exactly yeah oh um, ouch so uh, I mean there's two ways of, of fetching a, an arrow one is to find it on the way to your target and the I'll other find is to it find in your it target. in your target and that you know this is an, an option um, so uh, what ca- what can you do? Let's say, all right, you're a mason. You've got some skills, right? It's not just hammering shape. I, I, I don't want to sit there and go like, let's hammer shapes out of rock. So how do you make that meaningful? Like, if you've got a load of stuff with fieldstone, the thing that comes to mind is, I mean, uh, both of us are from Yorkshire. Um, boop, boop. Yorkshire is the land of dry stone walling. So you are not for wrong. those who don't know, dry stone walling is... Exactly what it sounds like. It's just dry stone. There's no, um, what do you call it? There's no mortar in it. And you just place stones on top of another. And it's a way to sort of consume the stones from fields to make it easier to plow and make a wall as well. Um, and you go out and about. And have you, have you seen like the odd little fireplaces and doorways and. Oh, like little nooks. And yeah, I've, I've, seen, yeah. I've, I've seen them. I mean, I'm, I'm, to be fair, I'm more city bred, so I don't see <laughs> dry stone walls on a regular, on a daily basis. But yeah, I mean, I'm still perplexed by the idea that people actually could go out to do dry stone walling as a hobby activity. Yeah. I, I, there aren't many professionals left. There's only a couple left. No, it's all amateurs but, that do it for fun. Yeah. Yeah. And like people who do it for like things like National Trust and restoring mm. bits and pieces. And I, like, but back in the day, you would do your apprenticeship and you do your masterwork and all that sort of stuff, and you would make all these various shapes as practice and as proof. Um, and as your masterwork, you would make a house. Uh, you know, wouldn't necessarily uh, have to roof it or whatever. Have to get maybe someone else to roof it, but you'd make like a she- um, like a, a shepherd's hut or something, mm. um, and make it with a proper fireplace and lintels and doorways and windows and all sorts just out of dry stone wall no mortar whatsoever uh and you do find them find them still uh in in the north york um uh north yorkshire dales and the derbyshire um, dales as well actually um mm. we went past a few when um was going to see my wife while she was camping with the parents um so a few on the the hillside in the middle of nowhere mm. the thing about dry stone walling as well is because you're working with the natural material as it comes you're not shaping it really um, although if you've got some tools with you, you can shape it and work it a bit quicker because you'd have to sit and sift through everything. But really what you need is manpower. Yeah. So if you've got a party and you whip them into shape and say, 
you know, you can't cast Leoman's tiny hut or whatever. You've got someone who just failed their survival role on building a nice camp or whatever. It's raining. The wolves are, are, are circling. Can't light a fire for the life of you. Um, and you just go, right, screw this. Everyone sh- sit down, shut up, <laughs> and do what you're told. <laughs> and you end up with a, a workable kind of igloo going on. That would be badass. That would that certainly would be badass. And as punishment, you make him pack it up and take it. With you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like the idea actually of, of like parties actually coming into contact with these and, and maybe seeing partially um, assembled ones or partially ruined um, huts or walls and re-establishing them in order to, to use them for their own purposes. And that's something the mason could do. Because mm, like a. Um you know, an igloo is basically the equivalent of like a lean-to. It's something you make when the sun is starting to go down. You know, you don't. Mm. It doesn't take all day. It's supposed to be quick. A temporary shelter. You throw up and just and leave when you're done. You don't have to take it down. Um, same as a lean-to or a bivouac, right? And if you're out in the woods, that's great. You can make a lean-to really easily. But if you're out on the moors, there's no trees, but there's a fuck ton of stones, and that's what you got to use. So yeah, you'd find all these igloos all over the place. Um, and I like uh, on on Dartmoor, for example, you'll find things like that, which are hunting hides. And this is I, I absolutely love this. You find some that are um, slightly sunken, and some that are above ground, and some are just sort of walls to hide you while you hide in this little pit. Uh, and some are really complex shelters um, that are sort of hidden by the landscape. And there are some that are well, sort of like eighteenth, nineteenth century. And some that are Bronze Age. And there is no way to tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> the only way we know is by digging down and seeing what people you know, dropped out of their pockets. Uh, and some of them were reused um, f- almost continuously from the Bronze Age to the modern period. Um, just using them as, as hides. Uh, so also if you're a mason and you've got tools, then you can start building things. Um, and a lot of people, I think, get caught up on this. This requires a workshop. You must do this thing. You're an artisan. Yeah, you might be an artisan, but that means you can make things that are quick and dirty, bloody quick and bloody dirty. You know what I mean? And this is a part, actually, um, journey, like what we were talking about before, journeyman masons, they ain't going to have a workshop. They're going to be carrying around the tools and maybe they, they'll use mm. someone else's workshop, but it won't be a workshop that's theirs and they won't have a vast amount of materials other than their tools and their person. Mm. and maybe uh, the um, apprentices I think also that that idea of you know you've got to make your way with what you've got and what you can carry for masons is going to be pretty spectacular because there's a lot of maths that goes into it when you're dealing with weight right um i mean i i used to spend a lot of time trying to research uh, medieval um designs for for wooden things right but there's nowhere the only places that you find actual things that are discussed and how to make things and what wood to make things out of is in a particular architectural treatise, just the one, where it goes into, and this is how to dress this huge building that you've just made. Yeah. Um, you, know, you might want to make some tables out of fur and that sort of stuff. You know, and, it, and that's it. That's it done. But the actual architecture, um, there's a lot of maths to learn. And if you've got someone who's got low int then well, well welcome to the world of craftsmanship you don't necessarily have to know the formulas and this you just have to know the ratios you have to figure out a way that you remember it and you do it all kind of by eye and by analog measurements because it's all about proportion hmm. so uh, you don't need to know um, how to calculate the load on a particular wall. You just need to know that if you're building a wall this high and this thick, this is how far in you can corbel it. You know, like corbeling, like, um, do you know what I mean? Like uh, you're, you're, you make a roof by kind of laying stones on each other. But oh, overlapped. right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. And so you come gradually towards the center and then you sort of connect them up. And, and there's a there's a formula to that. Um, it's also why cobbled houses things tend to be circular because uh, it, it, it means you have less distance to go from any particular wall but it, re- it relies on the thickness of the wall as well of how much weight you can get on there and there's an actual formula but not a single person who made a cobbled ceiling back in the day knew that formula they just knew this is how I do it so it doesn't fall down and it might be based on um, well if it's if it's as wide if the 
walls as wide as my forearm, then I can corbel it out as wide as uh, the, the length of my finger. That's sort of my little finger, that sort of thing. Um, or two fingers width is what I do. Uh, and if it's you know the length of my forearm on and my hand, then it's three fingers, and I can do that. And you know, um, they would use those sorts of measurements, and it's just doing things by eye and kind of by the seat of your pants, but tried and tested ways that, that works. If that makes a difference, so if you're a, a dwarf, right, you've got stone cutting. So it's not just now that you reckon whoever did this must have been a really good. You know, worker of stone or whatever, isn't you know how tall they were. You know if they were a dwarf oh, wow. or not. Because you know that a dwarf's forearm is this long. And that's why he made the, the wall that wide. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it's like they could be working to a whole different set of proportions. Exactly. Um, and you know that these ones were, were, were gnomes. Even though they might have built something that could house humans, you know that they were gnomes because the spaces between things and the proportions that they're using to build that size of thing are gnomish proportions. Right, I'm, I'm sort of pulling this out of carpentry again because if you look at timber frame buildings and things, you can generally tell um, where one workman has stopped and another has started on a 16th century building because they're using like a thumb or a forearm or um, that sort of measurement. And then you'll see the next load of timbers and things is slightly different spacing. And it's just someone on a different day, different person. Slightly longer arm is suddenly yeah. taking over the work. And then you know it's 18th century later because they've got rulers. <laughs> they all use the same measurement. So that's interesting. So maybe like you're following someone and let's say they're a master cub, they're a master mason, right? They really know what they're doing. And so you find their little hut and you know it's them because they do um, they did an archway and not um, a small lintel for the door, for example. Um, and that's their calling card. And they couldn't resist it. <laughs> uh, it's just how they do things. Um, or they put a nice facing on it. You didn't need to, but you did. You know, Just, just showing off their mastery. Yeah, or couldn't not. Couldn't not do it. <laughs> Could not help themselves. Because <laughs> they're diseased. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, and I've done it myself, and just making like stupid, cheap things on mass. And if something looks nice to you and whatever, and like, oh, I can't leave that alone. I've got to make that nice and ship that out, and it's Fat the same price, you know. So, what do you reckon, power gaming wise? Like proper mess. How would you mess with the DM, and how would you mess with the players with stone armor? Tools? Hmm? Stone armor. <laughs> about two. I don't know if you you ever saw it. It was in I think it's third edition. They had this ceremonial dwarven stone plate. I think it oh, had a God. 21 or 22 AC. <laughs> but hit it once. <laughs> I think the idea is they said it was magically treated, so it wasn't you know, brittle enough to shatter on impact. But Yeah, because it would shatter because, dear listener, they call it metal because it's harder than rock. <laughs> it does exist, though. It was a thing that actually it, existed. It, it was a thing that actually existed. I want to say it was in Races of Stone... Feeling that it may have been in the arms and equipment guide, but it was definitely an official D&D supplement. I mean, stone armor actually existed oh, in right. China in, um, I think, the early days of Han China. Uh, so we found, say we, um, Chinese archaeologists have found, um, you know, the, the, the uh, terracotta warrior's armor is like little yeah. uh, square plates. They have found actual used armor or... or I don't know if it was actually used in battle, but armor that was buried with soldiers and things. And it had those plates on it, but they were made of stone. Um, and it was the, you know, this this drill technique to go through each corner. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting, actually. I suppose it's like a, a modern-day sort of like ceramic plate that they put in um, body armor. Yeah, and it, it's it, made to be sacrificial. Like It's going to shatter, but it will protect you really, really well for that one time that you need it. Right. And if you're in battle... Generally speaking, you get hit, your luck is used up. You get back out, re-equip yourself, get that that plate sewn back on, and get out again. Um, but yeah, like uh, was it dragon scale armor for the modern soldiers the, with the overlapping ceramic plates and things? I believe so, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Like if you if you get hit with that, you don't. It obviously depends. You know, you're being shot at. You don't sort of go right. Well, that's it. You know, put your hands up and walk out. But at the very first available opportunity, you get the fuck out and you you get resupplied because that's now useless 
Um, it's just a bag of gravel that you're wearing. Um, stone armor, fuck. That'd be a big fuck you to the GM as well. But like, <laughs> if I was the GM and someone said, oh, yeah, I've, I've got stone armor, I would come down on them so hard because they've just made a point of having this weird armor that I know is really, really, really heavy. So I would just make them cross loads of rivers. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I think that was related. I can't remember if it was a different time. I think the the stone plate was actually, uh, he decided to try and grapple a, a fang, I want to call it a fang dragon. So he tried to grapple a fang, fang dragon. And at this point, I was like, right, how much does stone armor weigh? How much do you weigh? This dragon's dead. Okay, you're going to fall at this pace. And I think that was the last time we saw that character. I would quite like some stone armor that has more symbolic stuff to it, like um, or magical stuff to it. Like, um, just off the top of my head, uh, if you've got stone armor, it's it is useless. You have to protect it. If you're wearing it and you get hit, it will shatter, but allows you to swim through stone. Sorry, I've got nothing clever to add to that. Just ooh. yeah, I do like. <laughs> I really like that idea. Actually, sort of like a, an elemental tie to to stone. Yeah, so you're like a rogue, right? And you're doing a dungeon crawl. You get this armor, get it on you. You're like you're a dwarven rogue, and it's not necessarily because you're ste- you're sneaky. It's because you just meld with the stone and then ghost out of it. <laughs> I love that. that. That would be awesome. And um, there is a spell that does that. Um, oh, is was it called swim through stone or something like that? I, I'm not sure what the, the the higher level is that allows you to move through. Earth melt, um, maybe. Uh, yeah, there's, there's one that you can get that, that you just sort of step into the stone and you have to stay there, but you can like, things won't know you're there. And there's another version that allows you to move through it. Um, I think it's quite a high level thing. It's an interesting point actually, because you've got um, stone shape and stuff like that. And how do those, I'm just imagining the um, how terrible the, uh, the, an effect it was had on the Mason's economy when stone shape was first discovered by a wizard. <laughs> They're taking yeah, our like, jobs. Uh, yeah, it'd be, like, uh, it'd be like someone inventing... Um, Concrete. But then concrete was invented in the Roman period. So it depends how hard it is to do and how, how, how resource intensive it is to get that wizard to do that thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting idea, actually. Um, or maybe a, a, a wizard mason who uses a complement of both stone shape and chiseling. So you've got a big bad evil guy who is known to be the sneakiest rogue who ever sneaked, right? Okay. And it's because he's got this armor that allows him to meld with stone or whatever and he just chooses his targets really well just make sure they're in a stone building exactly yeah so um it's castles it's um uh, because i suppose masonry would count it doesn't have to be solid stone necessarily so all your big high profile targets can live in castles you know take shelter in forts um you've got a bank vault it's normally like deep underground and blah blah blah, (laughs) blah, blah. it's not necessarily encased in adamantine or whatever and all there's all these layers of protection he just bypasses it all and he's not actually sneaky at all like you you know you meet him he's just clanking all over the place or whatever (laughs) um but then he gets taken out by someone who can hit him twice yeah so he wants to break the armor in two (laughs) it's just like it's to him, it is, I, the, the image that came into my head is the voodoo lady from um, Monty Python, not Monty Python, from um, uh, Monkey Island. I, I haven't played that in so many years. The, the voodoo lady, you never see her walking around, which is also a very large lady, hmm. but then puts this armor on and just, and it doesn't even move, just like lays the armor on enough to be technically wearing it to activate it and just <laughs> sink. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> can't be snuck up on so it has enough of it on her at all times when she's sleeping or whatever there's something startles her she just straight down (laughs) in terms of the the masons and what they can do with the the stuff they've got in game uh, obviously there's there's ways to earn money and and stuff like that i mean i've been trying to place a bit more um, importance on downtime and stuff like that i do like the idea of maybe adventuring is their main gig but when they go into town they are looking for a new master craftsman to to learn under as well as to earn money. Yeah, I mean, uh, downtime activities is something that, that I think a lot of people pass by. And it's a good way to game when other people aren't there or like between sessions or say, you know, you're going on hiatus for like a couple of weeks. Um, you know, you finished one adventure and you're going to start another one. The GM just needs some time to catch up and, and prepare. Um, so you can have these downtime activities and you can, you know, do it by email. You can do it by, um, you know, messenger or whatever. Uh, and making a living 
supplying a trade, there are rules for it. I mean, there are um, it's like standard, um, what do you call it, standard earnings for it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, sort of learning how to do things better. You could almost say that to your GM and go, can I just like spend the time learning how to sort of make better masonry stuff? And, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. And he doesn't think about it and goes, that's, that's good. You know, he, so this is what they did. And I'll just say that with the first, that'll come out in the first session to say, what have you been doing? Whatever. But then like three sessions into your your game, you can just bust out. Well, because I'm so much better at uh, making masonry stuff now, <laughs> uh, doing doing things with stone, um, what I actually did uh, was was learn how to make this particularly incredibly useful thing. And so um, you start making traps, you know. Um, it's not just that you make a deadfall trap, it's that you make a really good uh, deadfall trap with a pressure plate and all sorts of stuff that doesn't need huge amounts of... Um, machinery to it yeah Yeah. uh it could be something as simple as being able to go into a a building take a tile up take all the support away from it chip away the the back of the tile so they make it incredibly thin like a little slate you know tiny slate or something like that and put those down so people drop down and injure their leg as well um or make a noise so that uh you know the last place you expect something to creak is on a tiled floor or a stone floor right I mean, I love the idea, the idea of like improvising a trap while in a dungeon. Because hmm. normally, if if you're in a dungeon and a trap occurs, it's occurring to you rather than because of you. Yeah. But I really like um, the idea of actually installing your own traps to sort of get the get the edge on the the, the, the you know the dungeon denizens. And and do your research as a player so that you can take full advantage of it. So, for example, you've got a blocking chisel. What about, okay, one of the things I've got now is I've got a, a big, wide, thin chisel now, and that is for breaking things into planes and making, um, like, slates, almost like like roof shingles. Um, and with that, you can start... Um, for, well, for a start, when you shatter it off, it leaves a perfect fit with the stone it came from, generally. You can put it straight back on, and if you had glue, it would just glue straight back on, and you would almost never know that it had been broken off, right? Um, provided you do it right. So there's an excellent opportunity to hide something. You take a uh, a bit of stone that's kind of you know opportune bit of stone that's coming off the wall, um, or sort of extends by about half an inch or so. Break off the first bit, carve a little hole in there, stash something in it, and glue it back on. No one's the wiser. I'll come to that. You know, you could be using it to um, to get your way into secret doors where the uh, the party's failed all the perception checks, but they know there's a secret door there. I'm just going to hit on random <laughs> hit on random shit until I find that secret door, or yeah. alternatively, use my architectural knowledge to um, find out where you know the most sensible place to put a secret door would be. It's not going to be on that wall because it's a load bearing wall. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, there's your stone cunning straight away. And one of the things that. I suppose comes to you is is that when you know how you would make it generally speaking people aren't that different the sensible place to put something is always a sensible place to put something like the old school way of prospecting for archaeological sites is go where would i build a house where would i go fishing where would i go if i wanted to to know where the animals were in this area that sort of stuff um and you just sort of intuit it out and there's a lot of gut feeling in archaeology and generally speaking if you feel good about a place or whatever then there's probably something there because someone else would have felt good about that place and if if you're looking for um for for uh you, you i mean you you can just you can cop out and say i have stone cunning this place is made of stone i should have a bonus to find secret doors tell me why yeah Tell me why you found this secret door. Tell me why you rolled high. Tell us a story of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you don't have to have like a you know massive flashback to the first time that your your master told you how to build a secret door or something. But just those little bits of like, why do you know? And why is it you that knows? Not just somebody with stone cutting. Why is it you that knows this? Like going back to the um, sizes of things, whatever, you know, the, the thief might be trying to look for secret doors and, and all that sort of stuff and furtling around and rolls low and doesn't find anything. And then you roll high using your stone cunning and having advantage and all that. And you realize that the thief has missed these things, not because he's bad at looking for things. He's just looking in the wrong place, Indy. And, you know, the the keyhole that you should have gone to or the latch that you should have gone to was taller or shorter if it was goliaths that made this place um the the hinges are set in a certain way because of 
um, even though you're not supposed to see them, there's a foreshortening effect. So traditionally, like hinges are, um, they're not evenly spaced on doors. On doors, so the the top one will be like if the top one is three inches from the top of the door. The bottom will, one will be like six inches from the bottom because as you look down, um, there's there's an effect called the foreshortening effect that makes it seem All like it's right, further so- away. You can make up any sort of bollocks, or you can research things. But if you research things, it'll like inform lots of character decisions that you wouldn't have necessarily known about. Speaking of which, we should have researched all of this, but fuck it. That's not what we do on Sonnet Radio. <laughs> we just sit down and talk bollocks. Oh, really interesting adventure idea, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. What about if you're the mason that's put all those secret doors in there in the first place? <laughs> yes. Inside the trade knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Or you know that, okay, there's a tomb somewhere in the hills above a town. The people who built that tomb are probably there. And even if the people who built it aren't there, the people who robbed it certainly are. (laughs) So you go, uh, you know, make your bona fides at the local trade hall and say, right, do we know any good good stonemasons out there? Let's go have a chat with them. It's an interesting point, actually. Um, I believe it's ancient Egyptians. There were a number of... Um, stonemasons working on the pyramids um, that essentially created their own secret entrances to get into later to rob the places. Yeah, uh, and then um, there's a theory that in a couple of places that there were ways to get out of secret chambers and things so that slaves and concubines and people who were put there to die could get out. Uh, and that's possibly put there by the architects and things who, who were you know, sympathetic. That's my take on it. Um but generally, like Valley of the Kings, um, the people who robbed the tombs were the people who built them. They knew what was there. They knew how to get there. They knew how to get it out. I mean, that, that'd be awesome for a campaign, having um, you know, a whole party of craftsmen um, who are literally just robbing the people who've um, set up these, yeah, set up like, these dungeons um, for. There, there are entire settlements um, near the Valley of the Kings that for generations upon generations have just been populated by... Tomb, tomb robbers. robbers and generally you know they don't look like Angelina Jolie they're not going on big <laughs> adventures uh, it, it takes hard graft um, and it takes knowing what you're looking for and, and what you might be in for um, but yeah mostly it wasn't like thousands of years later that people did it it was you know 10, 15 if that people will just remember that maybe <laughs> let, let the body get cold and then go back in <laughs> um, and and sometimes even the speed at which you would do that um, it, it is huge. So, you, if you're um doing a typical dungeon delve or whatever, and you're at a tomb, and the GM has told you this is a tomb, you're going into it. Uh, you've heard there's loads of treasure here and all that. Then, generally speaking, that tomb will have been robbed the next day, <laughs> the day after it was sealed by the people who did the sealing, because they're relying on the idea of the curses of the dead and all that sort of stuff, and and supernatural things being prevalent in people's minds and so people want to leave it a little while and uh, ruminate on it and then go rob in but the early bird gets the worm and in D&D that's where all these skeletons come from because <laughs> <laughs> they they will be magical traps and they will be deed just thinking about the um, the early pharaohs there you know they would have left some pretty poor reviews on checkertrade.com <laughs> yeah <laughs> one yeah, star hey, robbed me five years afterwards <laughs> yeah yeah, he was very prompt, um, you know, very good at taking notes, and then just didn't turn up ever again. <laughs> uh, uh, so, do we think we're about done with Mason's tools? Uh, I think so, yeah. I mean, um, I was going to go into a deep dive about Freemason's ring, but I'm not finding where to slot in, so I'll probably just leave that. Do it. No, tell me. Tell me. I want to know. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so Freemasonry was something that was coming up. I mean, obviously, I've heard of it before, but it was something when I was starting to research stonemasons and the idea that there are these rituals behind um, a lot of the knowledge they keep, um, which is what sprung up from, um, what Freemasonry sprung up from, um, became very interesting as I started to look uh, more and more into it. And the idea that they actually kept those same ranks, apprentice, journeyman, master mason. Hmm. Um even though, obviously, in, the, in modern days, this has become far, far removed from any actual masonry work. Um, I just love the idea that this, you know, these whole societies um, are built around. So, obviously, in D&D terms, in, in fancy world or even modern day worlds, you have um, guilds that fulfill this function and, and, and guilds are 
very much a, a source of pomp and, and ritual in themselves. For instance, like we were talking about with the, um, we were talking about growing up in Germany and you have know, the, uh, the, the German carpenters and they have their own rituals and their pomp and their uniforms. And it's, it's part of a, it's almost a cultural phenomenon as much as it is a, a craft phenomenon. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was just loving sort of delving into the, uh, the, the Freemasonry law almost and sort of tying it to sort of early craftsman, uh, law rituals, knowledge, this, uh, this keep, the idea of keeping this knowledge, uh, very, very select and very, um, not very much secret, but, you know, very restricted to, uh, to a certain class. Hmm. So I mentioned that I did a bit of research on sort of masonry in order to find out about carpentry. Well, someone else who did that is a guy called um, Peter Johnson, who is, I think, regarded as one of the greatest living swordsmiths by most of the people in the sword-making world. Um, he normally, uh, I think almost exclusively makes European swords, and he's the sort of person who will go into a museum with a micrometer. And if he's going to do a replica, it will be it will be accurate to yeah. the millimeter uh, or to, to the micron. And he is just astounding. Um, you don't ask him if he's going to make for him to make your sword. He phones you <laughs> <laughs> uh, once you once you're onto his radar. And uh, he's responsible for all sorts of breakthrough research, you know, like looking at uh, rotational dynamics in long swords, things like that. Mm. Great. But one of the things uh, he found was a thing um, that in masonry and, and in architecture is called sacred geometry. And that is this idea what I was talking about of um, proportions. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to know the mathematical equations. You need to know some drawings that allow you to or ways of putting drawings together and using circles and squares and dividing them and all that to use geometry rather than algebra to figure out how you're going to lay things out and i don't know if you've seen but i have a, a tattoo on my arm uh oh, yeah. let me just let me just get this on the camera intriguing yeah so um there's seven well there's eight symbols and seven of them are, are dice and they're, they're like the um, wireframe versions of all the the six dice of role playing, and the one at the top, the big square with a circle in it, which is subdivided and subdivided and subdivided, is one of these sacred layout things. And there's little circles, you know, dot, dotted circles that go all the way down. It sort of divides this line by four and all that. And that is the design for a longsword. That is how you come up with. Um, how you how you proportion a longsword so that it protects your hand adequately, so that it will balance well, generally, um, as long as you don't fuck it up, and gives you the sorts of lengths of things, and that's, that's in fact an Italian at longsword design. That, in fact, uh, that design... And this is just for you. Uh, is this sword. Oh, wow. So the... There's a little circle at the top. Yeah, I can see. I can see the... Um... And that is the minimum diameter of that pommel. That that pommel has to be in order to protect my hand when you draw a line from the cross guard to the pommel. The cross guard... The cross guard, the minimum width of the cross guard, is this line. Um, and it's just made by dis dividing the circles and the squares and things. And, and so, so you have these like eldritch symbols. And it's a sword layout. If you take this particular drawing and scale it up so that uh, you could get four hands, uh, well, actually, in this case, it's three and a half, because that's what I wanted, um, and three and a half hands, you would get a one-for-one -one layout on that sword that would match all the various points. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you don't need to know any maths. You just need to be able to, to divide the circle and... Yeah, and know uh, which reference points to use. Churches fit this, is why it's called sacred geometry, because most of this stuff is, is for churches and cathedrals and things, whereas um, castles and whatnot were, were made to fit the terrain, etc. Whereas things with standardized kind of measurements or standardized layouts or sacred measurements and layouts, um, this is how they did it. Um, so it's why the proportion of the nave to the chancel in a church is almost always the same um, and all the various different parts of it it might have this room or that room or this part or the other part but they're all got the same sort of layout so that you could 
in essence, if someone gave you a reference measurement and said, like, blindfolded you and walked you from one side of a church to another, you could then navigate that entire church blindfolded if you knew this. It's amazing, that. So mm. in, in terms of the manufacturing the sword and having these sacred geometries, was this something that was commonplace knowledge, or presumably this would be kept between um, master smiths and their apprentices, presumably? Yeah. Why do you think that there's so much goes on about the, the Masons is it that, uh, you know, being eldritch and, and secretive and all that? Because it looks like, um, what do you call it? Uh, like pentagrams and things. Yeah. It looks like those sorts of sigils, doesn't it? Because uh, it looks like, it does look like it's encoding information. Mm. Um, and it's, and it's, it's opaque. You can't figure it out. You need someone to tell you. And if you're not going to tell someone what it is, well, they can assume it's anything. And they're so, going to ascribe a, a certain ritualism to it or to a certain exactly. arcaneness. Absolutely. Um, like if you took the thing that's on my arm and reversed it and doubled it or whatever, it would start looking like a pentagram. It would look like some sort of Solomonaic magic symbol. Um, like the, the name of a demon or whatever. <laughs> and it's not. It's it's a formula for making the sword. I go to a, to a swordsmith, a European swordsmith today and go... Um, make me a sword and go what do you want and I just take my roll my sleeve up <laughs> and he would understand it um, and uh, you know in, in the same way if you if you are you, you find these um, symbols carved um, sometimes uh, in, in stone so you find this symbol carved um, and let's say you're in a uh, you're in a dungeon or, or you're in a, a, a large sprawling building that's been buried or whatever and you don't know the layout of this place and you find, or you're in a cell, wherever, and you find carved on the wall a symbol, like a square, just a square. You know, it's obviously not the layout of a building. It's not obviously not a plan, do you know what I mean? But in that square are all the points that you need to be able to put together the layout of this building and the design of this building in three dimensions. I mean, you could go one better. If, um, let's say, that you found a maker's mark in there because masons do mark their stone. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's 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 undercrofts of a lot of um, places in London, where uh, I think typically Italian uh, masons oh. would, would um, just carve stuff. I mean, they were carving all day, every day, but they just did ornamental things. And so these undercrofts that they were sleeping in on mass have just ornate carvings everywhere, and they're wonderful. They're not, you know, people doodling dicks everywhere, which they did a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bennett's Rule 101, if someone's going to make an idol carving of something, whatever, you will find a dick somewhere. <laughs> there will always be a dick on a wall. Does this even um, go back to, to some medieval architecture or medieval art? Roman. Then? Roman. 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 Just, just Romans, just dicks. Just as dick, far dick, as dick, I dick, can dick, see, dick. Dick, 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 dick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a really nice fort um, up on Hadrian's Wall. Uh, I think it's called House Dens. I'm not sure. Um they all sort of blend into one school trip for me, uh, where there's there's a field gate next door, and, and the the field boundaries have used um, all, all the stones that made this fort essentially been robbed out and be used to make you know farm buildings, houses, like thing, yeah. and walls, and stuff everywhere. Um, and just next to the, this gate entrance, there's a carving, and it is about eighteen inches worth of um, low relief cock. <laughs> <laughs> Cock and balls, just that, and it's it's thousands of years old. It's a scheduled monument. <laughs> it's <laughs> protected by law. So uh, we spent fucking ages talking about masons' tools. Uh, if we sp- if I have managed to edit this down under an hour, you'll be able to find our digressions and bloopers and things on our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash swordnut radio join us there give us a couple of quid and we will send you shitty swordnut prizes for as long as we are above <laughs> our funding goals and you get access to super secret awesome feed time where you'll find all of the stuff here that wasn't entertaining enough to go on the real feed so bonus sort of jay uh tell the people where they can find you and what you do and stuff and things right um you can find my work on patreon.com slash the gm's toolkit I'm creating, I've started to get back into it now. I'm off paternity leave, so I am starting to create uh, random tables uh, with all sorts of adventure ideas, character detail ideas, or just random things to add into your game. Um, you can find my stuff there. I've also got the Ironclad Artificer subclass now on the DMs Guild. Uh, it is essentially Iron Man in D&D format. And it is <laughs> nice. a lot of fun. I had <laughs> immense fun making that. And as, as a bit of recommendation, I did go on... Um the GM's Toolkit website today, I read some of the 
um, the wizard's bookshelf, which is amazing. So the level of detail uh, that Jay goes into for this sort of stuff, it's not just, here's a list of names, here's a list of um, NPC names. It's like, no, here is some actual stuff that you can bust out and shut your players up when they ask you odd questions. So, um, yes, there's lots of books on the shelves. You know, you know that one of your players is going to go, I want to read that. What? Yeah, I'm going to read this one. So what Jay's done is come up with a, a set of uh, a wizard's bookshelf, which has different sections. Uh, wizards would be would be organized, I think, to have different sections in their bookshelf. And um, there's the title. There is a short precy on what it actually is to give you a start. Or was it like um, one of your ones is Owlbears? Why? Origins <laughs> 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 and, and, uh, and you know, short description of what's there. So if they uh, so if they say, okay, right, well, what's on this bookshelf? You just bust this out and go, well, it's this, and they shut the fuck up. <laughs> Um, you just put your finger right on the pulse of what my players are like (laughs) (laughs) so uh, get yourself on over uh, for the GM's toolkit and support on Patreon because you get extra goodies you do indeed music for this episode is Girl Ghoul Go Go by Armageddon Gospel Revival if you'd like to get in contact with us to suggest topics to give us feedback let us know things we missed, things we got wrong. You can get in touch by email, swordnutradio at gmail.com, at swordnutradio at gmail.com. You can message me on Twitter, at swordnutradio, or you can get onto our Facebook page. If you like what we do and you'd like to support us, consider going to patreon.com forward slash swordnutradio, where you would have got access to Secret, Secret Awesome Feed Time, where this episode was aired a month ago. If you'd like to help us out in a non-monetary way, you can share this podcast with your friends. Recommend us on social media. Or tell people we suck. That's valid. Thanks for listening.